Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back to COVID-23, the 23rd recap of the echo done today by Dr. Shacker. Dr. Shacker, I am just, I guess, kind of at the beginning, I was hoping we'd only ever make it to COVID-19. Yes, and we went right on by. Now we are doing a once a week, a bit of a relief uh, because it's been so busy. We actually get a day off. Yeah. So, but Dr. Shacker from the University of Minnesota Infectious Disease, he is... Uh, certainly one of the best uh, speakers we have. He he ran through things today that were amazing. So, uh, but I think before we get to him, we should also uh, drop back. We we forgot about Jerica. Yeah, Jerica. I I really just I'm not a huge researchy person. I mean, clearly I've learned how to read journals and gotten into the research thing. But so when we said we'd have someone from the U come on and given a research update i was thinking okay how long can this really go off but she's really good and i just think it's super cool to be able to share what they are doing at the u and right now the university of minnesota medical school are tracking things in duluth they're looking at municipal wastewater treatment facilities across minnesota yeah let them go i'm not helping i know but this is so cool because was it just a couple weeks ago when we were updating the journal stuff with covid doing the recap on the the journal articles. This is what they're doing around the world, and it's coming right out of Minnesota. Yeah. Well, Whoa. I mean, I think the most important Welcome thing here is... Welcome to puberty. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but I, uh, I think that really, uh, first off, you forgot her title, which I, I, we need a title of some sort. She's the right. U of M professor and vice chair of research. We don't have anything close to that. So um, I am the co-medical like, director for the addiction department. department. Oh, and technically not yet. The primary facilitator for the COVID and addiction echoes. Okay. Yeah, I want to be okay to the primary. (laughs) I want to be the vice chair of anything. So you are my vice chair. Yeah, I'm the vice chair. Okay, (laughs) go ahead. Anyway, so they're looking at these wastewater treatment facilities as a way to be able to kind of track basically contact tracing without the actual contact um, to track where infections have occurred because, you know, the limited testing that we had at the beginning. So they're able to kind of see where outbreaks have happened. Yeah, they're basically working with the switch treatment plants. It's not like they're following people along. Don't, don't flush. <laughs> don't flush. But uh, it no. just You know, and if you're really into that kind of neat tracking, go back and listen to the podcast on Dr. Rush because you'll hear more about that too. Yeah, they tracked things uh, that people... Mercury. Yeah, that, that was in their stool, which was interesting. Here, we're looking, of course, coronavirus RNA, I suspect. <laughs> I would think so. I would think so. <laughs> anyway, so then we moved, of course, to Dr. Shacker, who I thought it was super cool. So he was with us a month ago, and he basically said, "We want. I want to come back and do this again. So it was really nice because he came to us. It was super cool. But... I think today I realized how cool it is when you have the same person kind of give an update a month later because it's the same. He knows what he talked about. He can reemphasize how things have changed from a month ago. So I just found it super informative and helpful and probably 
complicated to people who really haven't been on before. Yeah. I mean, you got to have some working knowledge to hang with Dr. Shacker. Right. You're not just going to go into this, you know, cold and know what's going on. So, yeah, he talked a little bit about uh, how he uses the kind of that COVID dashboard for John, from John Hopkins, and a lot of people have seen that. Uh, you know, the United States is just one big red blob now. <laughs> but and, South America is really where it's at, where yeah. they're starting to explode. Yeah, and we talked a little bit about this later, some of the questions that came up about, you know, how weather may be playing into this. And it's pretty clear at this point that, yeah, being outside, there is less spread with the sun and the UV light and all these things. But the reality is the weather itself, uh, if people are indoors, what difference does that make? And the answer is none. Right. Right. So. And then, you know, that whole, this came up later with the whole Florida resurgence and outbreaks and the beaches and the all of Florida reopening and now their numbers skyrocketing. And is that because it's just so darn hot there and everyone's going back inside? Yeah. But I'm trying to stay away from the gym where I lift all the weights because, you know, I don't want to get COVID. So I may look like I've. I'm not lifting as much. Hold oh, I, I hope I you've all seen him before. <laughs> I don't he can like touch all. his right elbow to his left shoulder. That's how <laughs> lacking of pecs he has. Yeah. But anyway, um, the one thing he then points out more locally is how the deaths, if you, especially if you look at M Health Fairview, the ICU beds and the deaths have been in a downtrend lately. Yeah. But the modeling thing, which who loves modeling? I don't know. I It's really hard to... It's really cool to look at and think about, but man, these poor people who predict this stuff. But it's really going to go into the fall. Um, and questioned even, is there going to be a second wave or is it just going to be one big continuation of the first wave? Is it all just going to keep going? Yeah. And he kind of said, yeah, until there's a vaccine. We're yeah. probably not going to have big waves. Yeah, he's basically saying this is just a, it's going to keep going up. And actually, uh, we just read something from Dr. Osterholm. They yeah. must know each other. Yeah, they're like buds, I suspect. But he, he's basically saying this is a, this is a forest fire, and there's lots of wood, and and that was how he said it. Uh, and it's just going to keep burning. Where there's wood, it's going to keep burning. It's going to keep burning. So and that America is a little bit behind the rest of the world when it comes to mitigating. And you, there's a curve even where yeah. Europe went down in the U.S. It just keeps on going. So the natural history of COVID infections he talked about, we're not going to bore you with that. But one of the interesting things he said was this asymptomatic cases. Now, again, there are some people who listened a little too hard to the World Health Organization. Oh, wait, wrong one. Wrong one. <laughs> and they were and they were wrong. Nope. I was thinking, oh. Yeah. And, and the World Health Organization, of course, retracted that. But he basically said that asymptomatic cases should uh, should really be looked at as unrecognized infection. And they clearly, these people exist. Do they have no symptoms? Maybe not. Maybe they got something you just don't recognize. But be that as it may, people are going to walk fancy. into your clinic. And if you want to take your mask off and you think you're safe, knock yourself out. Because some of these people don't think they're sick and they exactly. cough on you. Well, and he said it could just be a mild scratchy throat. Well, it's allergy season in Minnesota. So are you really going to say you have no symptoms? It's hard to say. I thought... <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry about that. Ah, oh, so funny. Um, he did also mention this whole antibody response, and I think it's very interesting. A hundred percent of people who are going to make an antibody response will have it by day fourteen. Hundred mm. percent of people who are going to have a positive antibody will by day fourteen. Hundred percent. And and in fact, 
that spurred questions later on that I'll just mention now. Uh, we brought up a case that we've had that we are just amazed by. Of somebody had two positive PCRs six weeks apart, no IgG antibody. And as it turns out, they've had a number of situations like that in the Twin Cities. So this is something they're actually looking at very closely. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think he's going to look into this one because why aren't they getting an antibody and what does that tell us? Right. So, so um, to touch really quickly on that whole asymptomatic, pre-symptomatic stage, is there was a study that came out of, of China where they really did look at it's not always this First, the primary case, you know, I'm the physician, I'm working next to a patient who has COVID. Am I going to be positive? It's who am I giving it to? These secondary cases. And this study that came out of China, um, temporal dynamics and viral shedding and transmissibility of COVID-19, 44% of the secondary cases all were infected in this pre-symptomatic stage. I mean, that's a huge percentage. Yeah, don't take your mask off. Right. And it's, it's the question of you've been around anyone with COVID. Well, that secondary case is going to say no because they were around me and I might not look like I have COVID. Yeah. But anyway. So. Moving on. um, And, of course, they they kind of – he reviewed that study from the homeless shelter. We've actually talked about that on a previous podcast. In JAMA? In JAMA. And uh, and basically they said that, you know, 36% were PCR positive, but 88% had no symptoms. They reported no symptoms. Now – Again, did they have some? Maybe. It was unrecognized. That's my new word. Unrecognized. Unrecognized. Anyway. So then he recapped some of what the typical clinical course looks like. So this whole incubation period, so from the time you're exposed until the time you have that first symptom is a average five days. Anywhere between three and twelve days though. So we've heard this. We have heard this. But again, like twelve days, that's a long time. Hospitalization averages at eight and a half days. This is what I'm getting to and why I'm recapping this. Of the hospitalized, the previous data said 15% of hospitalized patients are going to require ICU care. He said that's actually much higher in their institution. Now, he didn't give us the number. That wasn't the best part. The best best part was at around nine days, they just end up in ARDS and they go down the tube. Yes, they get admitted to the hospital on day eight and a half and they have ARDS on day nine and die. And one of these things is that are people waiting longer now? You know, do people not want to go to the hospital? And that's something we've talked about before. Anyway, of course, we all know these risk factors, age, hypertension, diabetes. But? But obesity has the star. Yeah. Obesity is really where it's at, especially in the Twin Cities population. Yeah, and when you look at the U.S. compared to Europe, I think we all know how we stack up. How we balance the scales? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So... Um, So it's not really known. um, Again, one of the things that people are wondering is what percentage of people who actually get infected need hospitalization? And again, these are numbers that are going to come out as time goes on. Uh, But just remember that, um, you know, there has been that increase in ICU bed utilization. And and again, are are people waiting longer to come in? That just came up over and over. Um, So I think that, uh, you know, that's just something we got to keep talking about. Uh, he talked a little bit about, you know, how this whole virus gets into the cell. And we've talked about that before, a couple of different ways with the ACE2. And, and then also that uh, that other way where they could come in with the... Uh, the endosomes. The endosomes. Yeah, there you go. The target of the H drug, which is worthless. Yeah. So, yeah, we can't talk about that. Um, but one of the things that he, he touched on for a while is this whole smell and taste thing. And, uh, again, I think that it's that whole deal where... Often this is like the first thing that pops up and 
can be recognized by people just sitting down for supper. And he had a great story about mm-hmm. how a kid just sitting there like, man, I can't smell a thing. It's like, that's when everybody put their mask on at supper. Too late. He yeah. helped make dinner. Yep. But yeah, the cribiform played all of the, the nasal yada yada. I thought how he described this though. So the, the virus comes into the, you know, the cells in the nose that gets inflammatory, blah, blah, blah. And then it starts to seed down the airways. But he called it direct contiguous spread. So they make this huge, what's it called? Um, Sensitium. It's like the virus just spreads like into this film all the way down the lungs. Like a sludge. Yeah. The spike proteins of the viruses all kind of form together and form this like sludge that's... So it's not like a lot of different areas. You can have this one horrible area that's filled with sludge of COVID-19 very, very localized sludge yeah and very localized and it can all be over rather than you know taking a chest x-ray and just seeing this massive pandemonia it might just be this small area mm. i don't know i just the thought of this sensitium it's so gross yeah don't like it so then he got into the whole cytokine and inflammation thing and uh this whole deal with il6 uh i think that uh you know, this IL-6 production by these pneumocytes, uh, you know, which kind of happens in early, the early infection. And and a lot of what he was talking about was like, well, at what point are the medications going to be helpful, right? That's Correct. that's the thing. I mean, if there's certain things that pop up, the IL-6 and then um, the TNF, the tumor necrosis factor, at the different times these show, are different medicines going to be better? And again, this is one of those things that have progressed from the last time he spoke to us. You know, they're able to now say that early on in the disease, IL-6 is high and tumor necrosis factor TNF is low. And then late in the course, IL-6 is low and TNF is high. So our favorite medication, tocilizumab, is going to be effective early because it, of course, works at IL-6. So if you're giving it early, it's going to be much more impactful to the poor course of the disease. And then, of course, the TNF, which is produced by these pneumocytes, that's a late deal. So late deal. if you're looking at like, well, what kind of touches on that? Well, things like Humira, uh, different things that are... These anti-rheumatology medications. Yeah. And actually, as a part of that, uh, we, ha- we had this whole discussion about, well, are these people actually at higher risk when they're on these medications? And the answer might be no because be of the no. lack of inflammation. And you know, historically, everybody who's always been on these medications, you do think they're slightly immunocompromised. But... but this Humira might actually brunt, blunt that response. Brunt it? Brunt it. Blunt it later on and actually make them less severe, which is, it's kind of reassuring for some of these patients. You so, know, then then he talked about something that, that <laughs> I think from a visual standpoint was very interesting because he talked about some of these uh, elevated exhaustive levels of these, these T cells. And I can just imagine these T cells trudging along tired, carrying their lunch bucket. They're wrecked. Man, they've been working all day. They're exhausted. They just can't fight infection anymore. That, is that just me? But that's what I was thinking about when he was no, talking no, about No, no, I was, I was totally there with you, um, except he compared it to, like, old people. Okay, so we got old T-cells T that are unable to mount the defense late in the kind of that inflammatory phase of COVID. Remember, that was, like, at the end of that chart. And I know. so, yeah, you don't get my visual. Never mind. So I do get it. It's this whole senescence he talked about, like, yeah. and, and that's why they're thinking that the older the people are, the the worse 
off they are because they're just they're <laughs> there's T cells yeah. and there's T C D eight cells are just like um spent. Done. So so it starts kind of with that lytic phase, right? So you get this viral replication, this whole ramping up. You know, people might experience the pneumonia and recovery, but then it moves into that inflammatory phase. But again, that whole lytic phase, that's where you're going to want to throw the antivirals, the remdesivirs. Yep. But then as you kind of move into this whole um, inflammatory phase, again, it's those tired out T cells. They're just, you know, they can't do it. So you get this inflammation, you get short of breath, and next thing you know, ARDS. Yeah. On oxygen, I go to ARDS, but you know, same thing. So, all right. So basically this chart, I don't know if you obviously can't see it, but this, this is a really good visual if you want to go back and you're really looking in really into this, but this whole lytic to progression to this inflammatory phase. Now he did point out that a lot of people will stuck at that lytic phase. They get this pneumonia, they get the symptoms, they get over it. It's for whatever reason, whatever it is about the certain people who are high risk, trans, move into this inflammatory phase, the cytokine thing, um, and that's where all these other medications may potentially be impactful, like euhemeras and all of those things. So there's not a lot that's out there as far as um, when are these titers good, when are these bad, you know, is it important to check different infections at different times? Um, but the bottom line, I think, with this is that, again, back to the whole lytic phase, you have these neutralizing antibodies. They're higher initially, then they just plummet as all these other cytokines and stuff take over. Um, and so it's really, again, this fast-moving disease that has had lots of different things. Um, he then moved into the epidemiology of SARS-CoV-2 infection in Minnesota, touching back on how the testing supplies and the goal of having these 20,000 tests a day, but again, limited by these kits. Man, I, I fell asleep. Where are you? Oh, no, I see where you <laughs> are. So, uh, you know, when you look at what Minnesota did, of course, they got this time period where they decided to do, I think it was, what, 10,000 tests? Or, no, they wanted to do 20,000 yeah, a yeah, day. Yeah, but, you know, then they went out during Memorial Day weekend and just did this huge, um, you know, thing kind of to help us with prevalence. You know, what's mm-hmm. the prevalence and uh, they did almost 10,000 people, Duluth, Moorhead, St. James, East St. Paul, Northeast Minneapolis, and Faribault. And uh, it's really interesting, I think, that if you look at the rates of positivity in, uh, you know, in the Twin Cities, it was like 5 6%, where you get to Duluth and it's like, geez, it was 0.07. Right. I don't, I'm sure Dr. Noska must be negative then. I would hope so. Um, but, you know, he kind of did mention, you know, like why St. James and Faribault, they're in like next to each other counties, but those are where those meatpacking plants and yeah. how Minnesota has been. I think Minnesota has been known for the long-term care and the meatpacking plants. Yeah. But um, then, of course, with the George Floyd killing on May 25th and all the worry about the protesting and how all of these hospitals in the cities have done a great job of just t- mass testing. But what he pointed out is that you know, he wasn't worried, again, about this the people who were protesting. He was worried about the people who they're going to go home and then infect. So he they were expecting this two- to three-week delay. I think and mostly like, because of their ages. They tended to be younger. Younger, healthier. Wearing, most of them were wearing masks, and they were outdoors. Um, and so, but still, it really hasn't, even a few weeks hasn't in, I mean, we're out. almost at a month. We haven't had any major spike. So, yeah, there is that. Well, yeah, nothing really. Then so. we're back to titers. Yeah. We already kind of touched on some of this. So. Yeah, I don't think we need to do that again. So I think that um, 
We can probably talk a little bit about, well, the H drugs in there. The H drugs in there. He, he started talking about some of the treatments, and I think that um, really what our goal is is to really just, you know, if we could do one thing, what would it be? It would be to stop that virus from attaching and, and really dampening that immune response. Those two things, probably the most important. So number one, well, if we treat people at the time of diagnosis, you know, will outcomes be better? And and they believe that's where remdesivir is fitting in. And again, right. this is, continues to be studied. Well, and this is in that lytic phase, again, this early phase, antiviral. And then although the H drug is, again, in that early stage and the entry in the cells are just, of course, he, I loved it. He's like, this drug, don't even. Like, yeah. he, he was so blunt. I just loved it. Uh, unfortunately, again, don't use it. H drug, not H-drug working. Out. So basically, you want to use remdesivir really early on, and then if you start to to progress, that's where you're going to want to throw in your tocilizumab to blunt that IL six response, and then later on, you're going to want to look for some Humira, maybe. Yeah. So what happens uh, if you're got a D dimer that's a gazillion? What are you going to do then? You're going to anticoagulate them. Yes, you are. And Long term. Yeah, and that certainly is showing mortality decreases. So I think we all, you know, everybody was seeing this at the beginning, and with D-dimers like that, we're all scanning people looking for stuff, but the reality is what's the next step, right, anticoagulating? Well, and that's just because of the direct impact to the, the microthrombi and all of these endothelial cell dysfunction caused by COVID-19. You're not necessarily going to have an elevated D-dimer because you got a PE from your COVID-19. You could just be having this microthrombi. Wow. Anyway, it's just a thing. But they're, they're, they are looking at some new immunotherapies, natural killer cell infusions. They're looking at some mesenchymal stem cells uh, treatments. So there are other things coming down the pipeline. Of course, the convalescent plasma is still being studied I really wish we could come up with a different name for the natural killer cells. <laughs> I mean, it's like something a little softer, like occasionally mean cells. No, but we want these. I know. These are the ones that are like your innate. So, like, sounds so I violent. see them as like the the dudes standing on the top of like the the bunkers at well, the ocean, like in the turrets with their big old machine guns. Like they're the ones that the first line. Still, how about? naturally want to just slightly hurt you cells whatever something less traumatic anyway so the dexamethasone of course hit hit the hit the papers you know and he was very clear that this is really this is a press know, release yeah this is a press release this is not peer reviewed um that although this everybody's hoping that a cheap drug like dexamethasone is going to be the you know savior for people especially on vents and oxygenated patients um, and it, it fits with what is happening at that time with, with the inflammatory response, your T cells that are just wearing out. I mean, then you throw some dexamethasone at it. But I think, and again, wait. He he's saying wait for more data. Yeah, we probably should use it, but we don't know for sure. We don't know for look sure. At, look at where the H drug was at the beginning. <laughs> anyway, touche. Um, and then mention some other new things being looked at. Metformin, because of course, you know, I think we talked about this with Amanda. They're starting to just look at every drug out there and hope that something comes up. But metformin actually is associated with significant reduced mortality in women with obesity or type 2 diabetes um, who have COVID. So for whatever reason, it works better in women, now. men. Don't know why, but, yeah, you know, why not? I think it's interesting that we haven't seen anything about vitamin D here lately. You know, that's one thing that's kind of fallen off. Haven't heard much. Um, so a couple of things have kind of disappeared. So again, uh, he just wanted in, at the be- excuse me at the end. He wanted to just make sure that 
what we're looking for is targeted approaches. So this is really what's going to be important is particular parts of the disease, target the approach of what you treat at that stage. And, uh, and so I think that's really important as far as survival. Yep. And then kind of ended with those questions we talked about the weather and then the vacation spots and summer camps. He didn't seem overly worried about this in our state anyway, because again, as Minnesotans, we like to be outside in the summer because otherwise you're stuck inside with zero degrees below zero. And so thinking that we might be spared a little bit of that during these summer months, because most of this is outdoors. But when it rains it's in gonna the pour. vacation lands and well, people are at their cabin, where do they go? Well, right. Restaurants. Well, they, well, even just going into their campers, I mean... It's not that their the campers are as yeah. big as their houses in most situations. So, I mean, they're going to go inside with their friends they're camping with, and now they're in a really tight space for fewer than to, more than 15 minutes. And They're going to go to large box stores. They're going to shop. Oh, my gosh. So, anyway. So I don't want to be the Debbie Downer here, but I'm just saying I grew up in those areas, and when it rains, town is busy. Right. But then I was thinking, you know, these people are all outside. That's great for the next two months. But then what comes in the fall in Minnesota, everybody goes right back inside, especially in schools. And mm. here we go, round 465. Well, tomorrow on our Echo, hate oh, to interrupt you. Dr. Alex Hubble. Dr. Hubble. He is the inventor of the Hubble telescope. That's not true, but okay, it sounds cool. Yeah. So Alex is a... Uh, Family practice physician, also boarded in addiction medicine. He did the fellowship. Yeah. And uh, he's doing a real cool thing on but feedback. But he like, took over Dr. Amer's clinic, yeah. which is way cool. That's very cool. The first Suboxone prescriber in Minnesota, Dr. Greg Amer. And so he's going to be on talking about uh, neurofeedback and addiction. And I think that's going to be great. Uh, mm -hmm. Next Tuesday, I believe on our Echo, it's about... Something like long-term care stuff. Oh, yeah, the home care. Yeah, home care. How home care has really approached this. And, I mean, they were very eager to present because they've really formed this coalition of very specific treatments. So. Yeah, and I think that's an important thing for us to listen to because, again, as Dr. Osterholm says, uh, this is going to happen for a while. This not is going, going away. On, not going away. Should we make soon. predictions? We're at COVID twenty three. What number do you think we're going to get? I think we're going to go to COVID fifty one, and then we're going to. I'll probably get COVID and have to take a week or two off. But and you did it without me last week, so. That's true. <laughs> All right. So I'm guessing 52, 53, and then we'll have immunizations. One, two, three, yeah, maybe. Mm -hmm. All right. Vaccine. Anyway. All right. Well, thanks, and we'll have Battle Legs uh, put a little tune in here. We'll thank everybody for coming. See you later. You're brooding or your old disgrace The black Fitzwilliams from the place He sent you to the farm Grace and victory was sure Soon the firebrand he'd secure And tell he met at Glen Malure With Gip McHugh will burn Curse as well, Lord Kildare Gip will do what Gip will dare Now Fitzwilliam have a care Calling his your scarlet With hammer and with sword And we'll go for by the Lord Gip McHugh was given the word Call me up to Carlo To Clonmore, there goes a boom of Saxon gore All great as Rory O'Gomore Extending loops to Hades White is sick and gray is fled And now for Black Fitzwilliam's head We'll send it over, turban red To Liza and her lady Curse as well, look as there Michael do what you will dare Now Fitzwilliam, have a care Fun is just a low With power, not with sword On 
come along I think the queue is giving the word Follow me up to Carlo All over the English pale See all the children of the gale Beneath O'Byrne's banners Roosters of the fighting stock Would you let a Saxon cock Crow out upon an Irish rock Fly up, we'll teach you manners Curse and swear, Lord Kildare Yep, we'll do what you will dare Now Prince William have a care Fun is your scarlow Up with power, God with sword And we'll go for by the Lord Yep, we too was given the word Follow me up to Carlo Curse and swear, Lord Kildare We'll do if you will dare. Now Fitzwilliam, have a care. Fun is your scarlow. Out with power, no 